last week of Daylight Saving here in Melbourne. Some like it, some don't. But Tuesday Home Time continues as usual with Jan Bartlett until 6 this evening. Today, two US peace activists following different paths, Anthony Donovan and Brian Terrell. Australian human rights activist Peter Murphy, always active about what's happening in the Philippines and unfortunately it's not a very happy story. Then news on genetic engineering with Bob Phelps, the executive director of the Gene Ethics Network with some fishy stories. No Kevin today, but he'll be back next week. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Anthony Donovan is an author, filmmaker and peace activist. He's participated in the UN conference that led to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, is an associate member of Veterans for Peace and works as a hospice nurse in New York City. The main focus for this interview is the inspiring story of the boat, The Golden Rule, from post-World War II to today. But we begin with Anthony's genesis for his lifetime activism for peace and justice. The genesis you know, goes way back. Actually, we had uh, President Johnson was running for office in 1964, and I had a neighbor who was a Republican who was uh, supporting someone by the name of Barry Goldwater. I wouldn't expect anyone in Australia to know these names. Barry Goldwater was running against him, and it was all around the bomb at that time. Barry Goldwater was saying that this guy running for president, he'll use the bomb, but he won't tell you. Me, I'm an honest man. If I use the bomb, I'm going to tell you. I don't know, but I was like 10, 11 years old, and I went around campaigning for this guy that I was told was being honest. So that's the first time I started politically campaigning, and it had a lot to do with this nuclear weapon issue, which I didn't really know much about. But I am from the generation here in New York City where we actually did practice getting under our tables, under our desks, and then marching down into the basement, which had the air raid sign on it, and where we would be completely protected from nuclear weapons. (laughs) So thank God for a number of activists that I had did not know yet, but uh, like Dorothy Day, who was the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, uh, who I wouldn't come to know till much later in life, I mean, when I became a young man, but they were doing these sit-down protests in City Hall here, saying this is a bunch of baloney. There's no protection from a nuclear weapon. Getting us all to go into basements and into shelters is false. Uh, No one will be protected. Getting under your desks is ridiculous. She would go to prison every year, and she would 
refused to partake in these mandatory drills in our city. There were mandatory civil defense drills for years here in our city. 1955, 1956, 1957, 1958, while I was getting under the desk in grade school, she was out there protesting in City Hall and being taken to prison. So my activism started when uh, with the Vietnam War. I was of age. I remember wanting to go to that war uh, because America, we're good people and we protect the innocent. And I wanted to go because the horrible communists were killing women and children. So I can remember very strongly wanting to join and get over there. It wasn't until like 1968, really late. Uh, you know, I'm 70 now. It's going to be 71. But uh, that I began waking up that things weren't quite the way we were told. And my hat is off to actually the people who are running this, this Golden Rule boat. The Vietnam veterans against the war are the people that really woke me up. I physically was woken up. Uh, I, I went to a rally. I saw uh, some Black Panthers and I saw some veterans just back from Vietnam marching down Broadway. And I said, huh, what's going on? They said, we're going to Wall Street. We're protesting the war. I said, Wall Street, you know, still like, wonder why they're going to Wall Street. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm 17 turning 18, not quite in with everything yet, or don't know the background of things. So this is June of 1970, actually, that this particular event. If you want to know my back, it is the baptism for me, this event. So it was June 1st, 1970, although I was awakening to things, My Lai Massacre hit the news, by the way, that massacre was brought to us by Seymour Hirsch, an investigative journalist who brought us the truth about My Lai Massacre and brought it out to the public, which really shocked our nation. I mean, we didn't think we could do that stuff. But Seymour Hirsch, I bring him up because he's the guy that just brought us the story, the fact that the United States just blew up this pipeline from Russia to Europe. And we did that. And it's, to me, it is an act of war it's an act of horror but seymour hirsch is still at it it's worthwhile not listening to our mainstream media here and probably in australia as well my beloved comrades and, and friends in australia we have to listen to other sources like yourself first of all let me just say thank you very much jan and anyone who's listening i want to thank you for taking your time to listen and i deeply appreciate the solidarity and and your time listening. It's a great gift you can ever give to anyone is to listen to them. So I want to thank you right off the bat to anyone who's listening, and to you, Jan, for that gift, a true human gift. So Seymour Hish, look him up and listen to him. He's the guy that put that report, and I trust this man. He's the man who also brought us the news about Abu Ghraib in Iraq. We didn't want to hear that news either, that we were torturing people, but I am marching down with these vets because I said, let me listen to some veterans just back from Vietnam. Let me see what they have to hear to say. I'm an innocent guy. I'm not a radical. I'm not anti-U.S. I'm not anti-anything at that point. I'm still learning. I'm a strong believer in humanity and the good of humanity. I'm a strong believer in charity and loving thy neighbor and all that stuff. 
<laughs> so still believing that that's what our country does in the world. And for the most part, I think it did and it does. But anyway, I'm marching down. I get to Wall Street, June of 1970, and they start talking. And all of a sudden, we hear cheering from the offices above in Wall Street. This is where the stock exchange is. Yes, we're the home of the stock exchange, Wall Street, and the people that fund all these corporations that bring us these wars. So uh, I'm still not hip to all this yet. So they start talking, and all of a sudden, we are surrounded by thousands. We are cornered, and we're surrounded by thousands of people waving American flags. And they have hard hats. They're construction workers. And later, much later, years later, we learned that our President Nixon, for those who go back that long, our President Nixon at the time told them about this anti-American group going down there to speak on Wall Street. So we're surrounded, and these guys are all carrying tools, four-by-fours, and they're yelling, and they're waving the flags. And there's a police presence that protects us for a moment. And I'm like, well, they won't do anything to me. I'm just an innocent young man, and, you know, I'm here to listen, so I'm going to be fine. The police presence just faded, and these thousands of construction workers cheering love it or leave it. I don't know where we could go at that time. I don't. I don't know if we can go to Australia or not, but <laughs> at that time, you were our allies, and I want to thank those in Australia who gave their lives with us in Vietnam. They went, I'm sure those soldiers who went to that war were believing, as I was believing, that they were doing good and gave their lives to protect us from communism, which was at that time considered evil. So uh, my honor to those families in Australia, who shed their blood and and were injured and maimed, and uh, you know, for that I'll always be grateful. Anyway, we were badly beaten up. About eighty of us went to the hospital. I, I felt very innocent at the time, but I got knocked around, bruised up, and I was very lucky to get out of there with any serious injury. I know the woman next to me, the young woman next to me, was knocked out, just knocked to the floor. That experience shocked me, to say the least. I was bloodied, and it kind of really got me digging deeper. You wanted to ask what began my act. I guess it was that and one other thing. Uh, I went to Haiti with my parents. This was already planned when this had happened in, in Wall Street. And Wall Street, why were they going to Wall Street? We now know because Wall Street is the place that funds our wars. I was naive at the time, and I didn't know a lot. It's the conduit. So that's who they were talking to. So that's kind of the beginning. But my parents, about two weeks later, took me. They were volunteering at a hospital in Haiti. Haiti is an extremely poor, I think it was one of the poorest nations on the planet at the time in 1970. So I went to Haiti to volunteer in a hospital. And in Haiti... I found that people were starving to death. Every morning I would go to this hospital. There were actually people on the steps of the hospital that were dead or dying from torture. They were tortured by the Mamakut for whatever reason, their political beliefs. And my mother was on the Kwashiorkor ward. <sighs> Taking care of babies who were... Um, 
you know, with the big stomachs who were dying from malnutrition. So I was coming from a place where I had no problem eating all I wanted every day. I was a football player. I was a sports kid growing up. I ate well. I never had to worry about food. So Haiti showed me that there's a lot of oppression in the world. Not that this was direct oppression by the U.S. This is another country, but I saw what politics could do and innocent people were, were dying because of political. So this, this combination is what got me started. And after that, I left school. I didn't go to college very long. And I did um, wind up going to prison a couple of times. For I always believed I was trained by the Society of Friends, which was a Quaker group I ran into. They were training us in nonviolent civil disobedience. So I went to some of the big demonstrations in Washington, D.C. at the time. And we got training before we went down there. So against the war in Vietnam. So th that's the origins, which I wasn't expecting to speak about today. But in the protest, I always met these old timers. They were very old people. They were in their 40s and 50s. So you know how old they are, right? People in their 40s and 50s. <laughs> now it seems quite young. They knew about nuclear weapons and the industry. I didn't. We were all very concerned about Vietnam at that time. But when Vietnam was over, thank God, and these huge protests did have a lot to do with this, and uh, just hats off to everyone around the world that stood up and called this atrocity out. Another war based on lies. Another war where so many innocent people were murdered who went like I was going to go, uh, believing they were doing good. Your parents must have known and cared to take you to Haiti to show you. Yes. Yeah, they didn't know much about the Vietnam thing. It was, they were learning as I was learning. The truth was slow to come out. Even though it was on our TVs, we still were, it was a big thing to support these people. But uh, my father, yes, was catching on at this time. He actually, he wore a, a black armband at work. My father, Tim Donovan, the workers around him got up and walked away from him. So, yes, he was beginning to learn also. So it was a lot of individual braybacks. We were slowly waking up. Really, my mother is the one who was a Catholic and really believed in doing good and was uh, always into helping the quote-unquote poor. We hadn't really realized how war contributes to the fact that there are poor in the world, but my mother was always concerned, kind of forced my father's arm to go down there. But uh, once he got there, he was all, all in, and uh, we all learned a lot uh, in Haiti, yes. Yeah, my father was a big Kennedy uh, lover, and we did not know much what was going on behind the scenes. I now know much more about John Kennedy than I knew back then. Back then, it was a little confusing. A lot of people said he was the one that really got us into Vietnam, but in reality, the more we learn about Kennedy, he was fighting the generals all the time trying to get us the hell out of there, and was he was waking up that he was being lied to. And his hand was being forced. And uh, so he actually put in a directive to get our troops out just a couple of weeks before he was assassinated. 
that he wanted all troops out of Vietnam. At that time, we mainly just had some advisors in Vietnam, but he had, he had already was seeing the light. Kennedy had also just passed the first test ban treaty, which I didn't appreciate until much later in life. What a huge 1963 was the pinnacle of the arms race. We were at full production of our nuclear weapons in 1962 and 1963. We were full out making as many as we could. The more we could get, the better. And Kennedy was really waking up to this is insanity. And he started, there was some, a Jewish man from New York uh, who was an editor of the Saturday Review of Literature, it was called. Norman Cousins was his name did the back-channeling for him with Khrushchev and Pope John the 23rd, by the way. Uh, he, he was actually an instigator. He's asking both, uh, without trying to interfere, but pleading with both Kennedy and Khrushchev to please let's not blow ourselves up. I think the, the crisis in Cuba woke everyone up to the fact that we actually could blow the entire planet up. So Pope John was very instructive, but this guy, Norman Cousins, who was a tremendous person behind the scenes that no one really knows about, did all this back-channeling and a lot of communication between Kennedy and Khrushchev away from the CIA as much as they could and, and the KGB, and, but they eventually found out about it. And, you know, both those leaders said our militaries are insane. They are going full speed. we got to do something about this. Kennedy gave his great speech on June 10th really calling for an end to the Cold War. Khrushchev heard that. He was trying to respond. But basically, our military-industrial complex got rid of Kennedy, and uh, theirs got rid of Khrushchev. Even though that test ban got through during his lifetime, he was dead just a couple of months later. That test ban was huge. No one thought it would get through, but Norman Cousins really rallied our newspapers, our women's groups, our women's organizations, you name it, all these civil society organizations rallied around the test ban treaty. It was the atmospheric test ban, no more, no more testing in, in the air or underwater. It was a tremendous miracle that happened. It was played down by the military and by our industry, uh, but it was really a miracle. And as soon as Kennedy was gotten rid of we just forgot about it. Kennedy intended that test ban treaty to be the first step only towards total nuclear abolition. And this is all not hearsay. You can, there's a great book. If I can shout out a book, it's not new. Came out about 10 years ago. It's called, uh, JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas QS's. It's a great, great book. Everything is well footnoted. It's written with great heart, great spirit, great specifics, all just lined out for anyone who's serious about this subject. There's no uh, speculation in this book. Wherever there's speculation, it's clearly spoken of as such. You are listening to an interview with anti-war activist in the United States, Anthony Donovan. Anyway, we got rid of Kennedy. And uh, the nuclear arms race continued. And all our treaties, pretty much, even though Johnson, our next president, did bring the NPT, did uh, sign and 
announced the NPT at the UN three years later, it was really just mostly words and no one really took it terribly seriously and we still don't. We still block this NPT treaty every day and I'm afraid to say that your country is is part of that block. I wish <laughs> your citizens would say, United States, we love you. You're great allies. We have a lot of common values, but could you please stop this nuclear arms race and could you please stop all these wars? You know, could you please negotiate? And especially the one we're in right now. It's just another war based on lies. We are refusing negotiation. Several opportunities. But anyway, um, Jan, I don't want to get way off the topic. Okay, well, let's start with the golden rule. This boat has an inspiring history. Yes. The golden rule, for everyone who doesn't know about it, there is a website. Uh, it's VF, I can email it to you if you wish, but VFP Golden Rule Project.org. All together, no dots are VFP Golden Rule Project.org. And you can find information about there. But this is a boat that sailed into the Pacific Ocean in 1958 to halt our nuclear weapon testing there in the Marshall Islands the radiation of which you are good allies were you were downwinders you were getting that radiation this radiation was spreading around the world but you and new zealand were uh, recipients of all our tests we did thousand tests there many many hundreds of tests in the air huge tests that that were just unbelievable tons of radiation so as and linus pauling the same year brought a petition signed by many hundreds of scientists around the world, brought a petition to the UN in 1958 saying, please stop these tests. You are spreading cancer around the world. And indeed, if anyone knows anyone that has cancer, there are many causes of cancer, but let's not fool ourselves that this highly cancerous, these isotopes, has something to do with the huge rise of our loved ones, children, family, friends dying cancer. There are many other causes of cancer. There are many other chemicals that we spew into the atmosphere, but these isotopes didn't help any. Don't want to get off again, but the Golden Rule sailed to stop these tests. The captain of this boat, I mentioned the name Norman Cousins before, who shuttled between Khrushchev and Kennedy. Norman Cousins in 1953, so years before that, went to Japan as an editor, as a writer, and went to Hiroshima. Anyone read the book by John Hershey called Hiroshima? He wrote this book right after Hiroshima in the 40s, and it was a very popular book. If you want to read a direct account of after the aftermath of Hiroshima, it's a must-read book, Hiroshima by John Hershey. Norman Cousins went to Hiroshima, and he met the priest that's mentioned heavily in that book. That priest introduced him to a whole bunch of young women that were severely disfigured by the atom bomb. And they they were huddled. They were extremely shy to go in public. They were ashamed. They weren't hired. They were young women that were basically shunned by society, 
because they looked horrible. No one wanted to see them. Norman Cousin saw them. You know, life changes. Our life changes by really individual acts. One person doing one thing. So that's why your phone called to me today. And it's just, and one person that's listening. We don't know what the seed does and how it carries through time. So Norman Cousin shows up at this church. And he says, I have to do something about this. So he goes home and he tries. And it's not easy. We hated the Japanese still, you know, many people. <clears throat> we lost a lot of people fighting them. So it took time. But thanks to some Quakers and, and some doctors, his doctor, who happened to be his doctor at a hospital here in New York, said, well, you know, I'll try. And he spoke to the plastic surgeons in that hospital, Mount Zion Hospital here. And said, well, let's try. We'll see. Can we raise money? They tried. It was really hard to raise any money for this. But the Quakers, they said, well, we'll try to do something. So basically it took time. It took over a year. And they decided after a long back and forth to get about 25 of these Hiroshima maidens to come to New York City. Why am I talking about this? Because these maidens, when they came, they had to be placed in homes. The Quakers here had the job of placing them in American family homes carefully, places where they would be loved. The surgeries took over a year. They need to be homes that would make that commitment. One of the homes was this guy, Albert Bigelow. Albert Bigelow was a combat naval officer in World War II. He c commanded three combat vessels in World War II. He was not a peacenik. After witnessing two young women in his home for a year, he said, I have to do something about this. Again, one person. He starts talking. He starts gathering Quakers and other people interested. There, by this time in the mid fifties, there are a lot of people. War Resisters League, the Catholic Worker, Sane for a Survivable Planet. A lot of organizations are happening now in Australia as well. By the way, you had huge groups in the fifties against these weapons. So he starts getting a lot of support for his idea to sail a boat into the Pacific to stop our darn testing there. At least try. At least get it in the news. Get something that people can't stand. This. So he risked his life, and along with three others, to sail. So that is the history of this boat. It's a small wooden boat, 39 feet from bowsprit to the end, and it sailed into the Pacific. They, of course, were intercepted on their way by the U.S. Navy, they were brought in back to Hawaii, the nearest island. They were tried. They were thrown in prison for six years and the boat taken away. Okay, so that's the end. He writes a wonderful book, The Golden Rule, The Voyage of the Golden Rule by Albert Bigelow. Let me tell you one other thing about Albert Bigelow. It's not in the book because he wrote it in 1959. That's when it's published. I don't know if you can find it. It was long out of print, but The Voyage of the Golden Rule. Albert Bigelow three years later, we find out, is on the first Freedom Ride, the first bus of the first Freedom Ride, 
This is in our civil rights movement here in the United States. This is 1961. And we have a, a man who became a congressman here. His name was John Lewis, where he became a representative, John Lewis, who was on that first bus, the first Freedom Ride. So this captain of this boat, I guess his consciousness just kept going for people in the world. And he got on this bus ride, and when they got to the South, uh, it was to integrate the South and to say enough is enough for in our civil rights. They were going to go to lunch counters and, you know, try to get kids into schools, all this kind of stuff that was happening here in the United States uh, around the civil rights movement. So Captain Bigelow got his head handed to him, along with another crew member that was on the Golden Rule, Jim Beck. He was with the War, War Resisters League. So the two of them from this same boat that sailed in 58 were on this first bus, the first Freedom Rides down in South in 61, and they got really badly beaten up. That's a little bit of the history. Let's cut back to 2010, so not long ago, 13 years ago, where... Um, a historian just writes something about the Golden Rule, and this is picked up by a Veterans for Peace, person in Veterans for Peace. He writes someone that, hey, we think the Golden Rule might be in a little marina somewhere up in California. You want to go check it out? You're out in California. Well, this guy's name was Freddie Champagne. He's still alive. He's got to be up there. He's got to be 90-something. Freddie Champagne He's with a chapter of the Veterans for Peace, Vietnam vet. He says, well, that's not exactly close, but sure, I'll go up and check it out. He goes up. This boat is sunk, half sunk, huge hole in the side. It's dilapidated. It's really in bad shape. He reports back and saying, it's in bad shape, but it, this boat is speaking to me. We might be able to do something about this. Once again, let's go back to one person. You know, one person that might be listening today, one person, Freddie Champagne, said, let's do something about it. This boat is speaking to me. He listened to that, and he went around to the other chapters of Veterans for Peace. Most of the Veterans for Peace at that time saying, look, we're having a hard time fundraising. We don't have a lot of money. We can't be pouring it into raising up a boat that's dilapidated, all right? And what are we going to do with this boat? We don't have the money. We don't have the means, blah, blah, blah. But he keeps at it, and he gets volunteers. He gets it out of the war. He gets friends to help. He gets other people from Chapter, and he's with Chapter 22, to be specific, of the Veterans for Peace. It's only a couple of members. So it only took a couple of members to pull people that know about boat building, that know about, you know, salvage, know about this stuff, and they just worked. And they did fundraising. And that's when I I was doing a film about those who've tried to stop nuclear weapons. It's up on my webpage. I have a webpage. I don't recommend anyone watch it because it's, <laughs> it's three and a half hours long. I tell people it's shorter than Gone with the Wind, but uh, it's still very long. It's called Good Thinking. I don't mean to plug my own work, but it is in doing the research for that work. This is 2011. I was researching, and that's where I came across the story of the Golden Rule. I said, wow. And I called California to see if this was really happening, if people were really working on this boat. And I spoke to this guy, Freddie Champagne, and he was really into it. So I sent my 100 bucks or whatever, and I said, it's a great idea. 
So I didn't hear much about it until several years ago. There was a proposal by the, the National Foundation of Veterans for Peace to do, do a great loop. In other words, go sail around the United States and help everyone here you know, to teach them about nuclear weapons and what's going on in the United States, how we're spending trillions of dollars on new nuclear weapons. A lot of people don't know because Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize, and this is what got me going with my project because I didn't know. I knew someone in the State Department that told me. But President Obama, after he got the Nobel Peace Prize, for what? If anyone remembers why he got the Nobel Peace Prize, it, he got it because he said, I see a nuclear-free future. He said he was working towards a nuclear-free future. He got the Nobel Peace Prize, boom, right away. Just a few months after that, President Obama signed all the directors as much as I think he's a brilliant man and a good man, he's the one that signed all the directors in the United States, not President Trump, <laughs> but President Obama, all the directors for new nuclear weapons uh, facilities. This blew my mind. I said, why isn't our press saying anything about this? And why? Because our press, like probably your press, is owned now lock, stock, and barrel by these same companies that make our armaments, by that Wall Street that I was protesting in 53 years ago, innocently, I must add, that I woke up to. So that's a little bit of the story. So it's been selling. It, uh, the Great Loop that it's been doing, uh, it goes to the Great Lakes. It goes down these canals to the Mississippi River. Most of your people probably know more about our geography than most Americans know. We're very bad about learning history, geography. I think most of them knows that Australia is somewhere south of them. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, or have been our, in our partners in, over the many years and in many ways. So it sails down the Mississippi to the Gulf and then around Florida and all up the eastern seaboard. And uh, if you go to my website, which is my name, anthonydonovan.com, it's a very modest, simple website. I, there's a couple of articles I wrote briefly about our nuclear weapon industry, but about the golden rule a little bit. Uh, go to that website I mentioned earlier for really for the information you need on specifics around the golden rule. Yeah, so it's making its way to New York. It's going to land here in May. I'm the point person for the Veterans for Peace here in New York City, so I'm very involved. We hope to have a reception at the United Nations for those, the uh, states that got through this tremendous accomplishment, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which your nation and my nation boycott, pretend doesn't exist, call it naive. Naive, it's baseless, it's... It, it's our representative here in the United States at the time was calling it dangerous. Trust us, people. We know about security, and our allies are with us on this. They know about security. So please, Australia, please tell your representatives that you're not naive and that you know a better way about security. And it doesn't have much to do with building new nuclear weapons nor getting these nuclear weapons submarines from us. Matter of fact, that is, wow. Just do a little bit of research on the history and on the movement and why we have to get rid of 
But I don't think anyone listening to me on your show will need to hear any. I don't need to be on the pulpit about that. I'm sure they're we're in the same page. But this so anyway, the golden rule will be received by a number of the countries that are pulling together the meetings around the TPNW. The next meeting is November uh, in New York City at the UN. All the states that are parties to the TPNW are gathering for the treaty. Observer nations are welcome. So Australia, your representatives are welcome to come to New York and observe this meeting. You can't participate, neither can my representatives, but I'm urging my representatives to get there and listen to the facts. You have questions about security? You have questions about anything? Ask. You'll find out. You'll find that people have done, around the world, have done deep, deep thinking. You have ICANN in, in Australia. I think Jem Romald uh, is her name. She was on a little panel I held at, during the treaty process. But Jem, in her own right, is, is a brilliant woman. Do you know her at all, Jan? I'm a member of ICANN. Oh, great. Well, then, you know, Jim? Yes. Oh, well, give her my love. (laughs) So, yeah, she's, she, yeah, give her my love, and she's been doing great work, and I was honored to get to meet her up here in New York City. So, and she doesn't need to listen to any of what I've just said in the past 40 minutes, because she she knows it well. And, uh, you know, Tillman Ruff. You must know Tillman Ruff. Then. Absolutely. Oh, you must give a big hug to Tillman Ruff. Oh, my Lord, he's one of my great heroes. I mean, really, uh, what a tremendous soul these people are. And, and they've, Tillman's been at this forever. So my hat is off to you, Jan, and to Tillman and to Jim and to everyone there. And, and right across the water... You have uh, Robert Green in New Zealand, uh, who is at the treaty process here, who I love. And New Zealand was a great, great voice throughout this whole thing. And I don't know how the relations are there, but uh, there was such a great, strong voice through the entire process. So, Dan, I'm sorry, I'm going on. So any anything else about this boat? Just the golden rule, we are talking about the TPNW, where explain the TPNW to all the Americans as this sales goes into towns, villages, and cities all along this coast. And as we sail into the ports where our submarines that you're getting, I hope not, but uh, that are being manufactured for you guys and for us, we are going sailing by these places. And with our sails on this boat with a big peace symbol, that peace symbol, of course, comes from the Albemaston marches in England back in the 50s. That's where we got our peace symbol. And so hats off to that great disarmament crew in the 50s in England. So, yeah, they're sailing with that and, you know, veterans for peace. But we are going around talking about the TPNW and why it's important. We also bring in all the racial justice issues, the social justice, the economic issues relating our wars to the poverty that we see around us. And of course, as you know well, the severe need of climate, we desperately need all our focus and our energy for our environment and our climate, not for wars. So I'm I'm speaking to the choir right now. You all know this, but that's 
this boat tries to tie in. We meet with all the all those involved with climate issues here and cleaning up the waterways and the, the lakes and the rivers. So we're, we try to tie in those issues. It's lonely, and we don't get any press here. We only get minor press, you know, the little folks. But it spreads one by one, person by person, just like you, just like Tillman, just like Jim, just like Robert Green and all these wonderful people, just like Albert Bigelow who skippered this boat a long time ago. It's a wonderful story, Anthony, and I thank you. Thank you, Jan. Thank anyone who's listening, all who's listening. God bless you all. And Anthony Donovan is an author, filmmaker, and peace activist based in New York City. Hey, everyone, this is Jen Cloer. I'm here at 3CR Radical Radio. And it's just a little reminder that you might have forgotten to subscribe, so why don't you do it now? Jump on the phone, 9419 8377, or online at 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Let's keep independent community radio alive. Time now for some fishy stories with Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, and Bob, the first topic is carp in Australia. Can you tell me when carp was first introduced into Australia and why? Oh, that's a good question, which I don't know the answer to. The European carp definitely is a very aggressive, invasive species in Australian waterways, which has been here for a long time. I imagine it was originally imported for um, angling. Fishermen would have liked it, I guess. But I don't know the detail of that. However, bringing you up to date, it is a, a major problem for native fish and for the environment in uh, our inland waterways. There ha- has been developed over a number of years uh, involving 40 scientists and some tens of millions of dollars, a plan to try to eradicate the European carp from Australian waterways. The plan and uh, the ideas that are behind it have come to light again in the last few days or week or so because, of course, there's been a massive fish kill in Menindi in New South Wales, western New South Wales. It's a result of um, environmental disruption, but it's interesting that most of the media doesn't mention that among the native fish are the carp as well. It's just given rise to another discussion about whether or not the carp should be um, eliminated using various biocontrol strategies and that's where genetics, of course, comes in. What's this herpes virus? Well, the, the bright idea from the 1990s was to uh, introduce a herpes virus, and they've been thinking about it for a long, long time, along with a genetic engineering strategy called daughterless carp, which would change the sex ratio of the carp populations so that they would be less productive and it would reduce their numbers. The idea of uh, putting the herpes virus out there was that this would um, very greatly reduce the population. But as wise people point out, if there are herpes-resistant carp in the population, then the population will quite quickly bounce back and become the problem that they are at the moment. Our interest in this is that the, the daughterless carp strategy, the genetic engineering of carp, really didn't have any technical weight when it was suggested uh, back in the 1990s but now with the development of CRISPR technology and gene drives it's coming to the fore again as an idea 
of limiting carp um, reproduction. However, the, the plan is still pretty wary of this approach. It's saying that the new techniques are still very controversial and may take many years before they could even be considered as an acceptable approach, if ever, quote-unquote. So the future of carp in Australia is, is unclear, but it, it is seen by scientists and by government authorities and water managers as a problem to be dealt with. Our suggestion is that maybe they should just reconfigure their ideas about it, like a lot of other invasive species in Australia, and we have a huge number of them. We need to to think we've got these animals here. How do we actually find some benefit out of them rather than simply seeing them as something to be eliminated? And when you look at carp, uh, if you refocus them as a valuable resource, then they are actually the world's most eaten fish. They've become very popular in Europe, in Asia, and, and the southern USA. And Russian and United Kingdom anglers are also keen on, on them because they're um, good angling fish. If we harvested carp from our waterways and saw them as a resource, we could use them as a great fertilizer, for instance. There's already Charlie's carp out there in a small way but we could much more widely use them on farms and gardens as as fertiliser, particularly at this time because other sources of plant nutrients for agriculture are becoming increasingly depleted and expensive. The carp, a good eating fish, could be used to feed domestic animals if one wanted to and also as a great fertiliser. So I think our contribution to the discussion about this is don't deploy genetic engineering in the carp population to try to eliminate them but refocus thinking about them because the problem with um, approaching invasive plants and animals and microorganisms is that you see them as a pest, you try to destroy them. They're here and we may have to live with them and perhaps we can refocus them as a uh, useful and valuable resource instead of these constant um, expensive scientific efforts efforts to eliminate invasive species. How far developed is the plan for the virus? Well, the plan came out a couple of years ago and uh, the virus is certainly in there and it's the most talked about thing because people who are commentating on it see it as a simple thing. You let the virus go and it kills the carp. As far as anybody knows at the moment from the research that's been done, it won't spread to other fish. But of course, out in the environment, we don't really know how the herpes virus would behave. Experimentally in the laboratory, it seems to leave other fish species alone. But I think you could say that if you let the virus go, really the current fish kill, which has been clogging up waterways for several weeks now and is likely to be a problem for quite a way into the future, and it's not the first time, of course, that this has happened, but if you killed a lot of carp in the environment, then other species would be killed as well from the degradation of the environment as a result of those dead fish uh, lying about in our waterways. That's essentially what's happened at the moment. And uh, it's just an environmental and public health disaster. We need to be thinking also about those waterways not as drains, which is how Europeans have been treating them for the last two centuries, but also think back to the fact that they were very managed environments with a lot of levees that created um, what Westerners call swamps, I suppose, but were seen as um, 
very productive fish hash- hatcheries and so on by the indigenous uh, environmental managers prior to our arrival. Of course, when European farmers came, uh, they wanted those inundated areas for grazing sheep. The sheep got foot rot, so they knocked all the levees down and drained those areas to grow grass. And as a result, the main rivers have simply become massive drains for um, large areas of the countryside, don't function very well or as really as nature designed them to function to move slowly and to nurture the uh, environment and the animals that inhabit them. What's the aversion in Australia to eating carp? I'm not quite sure. As a vegetarian, I I can't uh, put myself quite into the uh, mindset of, of people who prefer other fish. Whether you could actually eat the <laughs> the number that are out there, I'm sure they outnumber the human population or not, but you'd have to get people used to the idea of eating them. At the moment, of course, we're um, eating a lot of shark, the so-called flake and other mainstream fish in fish shops is mostly shark. That is depleting the uh, stocks of shark around Australia as well. So these are big issues. If we could get people onto eating carp, it would certainly be rescuing other species as well from being battered and eaten. You've given me a heading, Bob, something's fishy. Tell me about that. Well, this is uh, about some of the genetically engineered fish that um, are coming online from other parts of the world. Fish, of course, fertilise their eggs outside the animal, and that appears to be one of the main reasons that it's relatively simple to um, genetically engineer them. And certainly in Japan in particular, but also in the USA, there's been a lot of work done on genetically engineered fish. Catfish, brim, pufferfish, salmon are just some of the species that are um, being actively worked on. And of course, Aquabounty has been um, farming uh, salmon in Canada and the USA now for several years in fish farms. They grow more quickly and um, reach a greater weight at harvest than conventional salmon. And as a result, they've tried to build um, an industry out of, out of that. However, it, it's very interesting that just in the last week or two, Aquabounty uh, has decided that it won't be producing any genetically engineered salmon in Canada anymore. Uh, the Canadian uh, shoppers appear to have said no. They are now focusing their operation in the USA, although they are going to uh, keep their fish farms in Canada open for conventional varieties of salmon. It's an area, as I said, that um, a lot of work has been done on, and uh, there are proposals now for um, brim and puffer fish, I believe, to uh, be grown out in aquaculture in the Philippines and potentially Indonesia as well. What these genetically engineered fish that will grow more quickly and to larger weights uh, would actually mean in natural environments is unclear because the proponents of these new genetically engineered fish are saying that uh, they'll make sure that they're secure, that they're kept in aquaculture farms on land, that they won't have any detrimental effects on the environment, that the fish product will be unchanged and that uh, people will flock to buy them, that it will altogether make the whole industry 
uh, more profitable, of course, which is the main driver for this. And the connection to Australia is that uh, most recently the the last of the fish farms in Tasmania has been bought up by foreign interests. So the whole industry there is now foreign-owned. As a result, we think that there may be some prospect of tuna or perhaps salmon uh, being brought to Australia as well. So the local groups are interested in shutting down the Tasmanian aquaculture industry are now paying attention to the genetically engineered fish as well. And in the UK, we've got precision breeding. That sounds pretty nasty to me. Yeah, this is um, a new framing for the so-called gene editing, which, of course, was invented in 2012. The UK Farmers Association has been breaking its neck to get hold of genetic engineering technologies and has been pushing very hard on behalf of the uh, genetic engineering and agrochemical industries to have new legislation in the UK. And as part of the Brexit package, uh, this has now happened with the new Genetic Technology Bracket Precision Breeding Close Bracket Act being given approval last week and going up for um, His Royal Highness's consent. So it's in action. Um, we'll see how it plays out. But this is part of a trend worldwide. A similar debate is going on in Europe where um, the industry is trying to encourage European governments to uh, lift their bans on genetically engineered crops, animals and microorganisms as well. Although the debate there has been a lot more robust. A petition with 420,000 signatures on it, for instance, was uh, recently submitted. What I think we can say is that the farmers group that managed to change the law in the UK is really a front for the industry uh, with scientists and uh, and companies working together to really deregulate genome editing. And, of course, a couple of years ago, in 2019, we saw a similar debate here in Australia and uh, the regulation of one category of uh, genetic engineering techniques known shortly as SDN1 uh, were deregulated. So it's going to be much more difficult now for those of us who are monitoring these things to uh, know whether or not gene-edited plants and animals and microorganisms are going to come into Australian production systems and into our environment as well, because uh, there'll be no requirement on the industry to notify the Office of Gene Technology Regulator that they're going to release these things. Uh, it's essentially self-regulation. If something is novel and uh, appears as though it may pose what they see as new or unique threats to public health or safety, then they would be required to submit them. But otherwise, they can pretty much well have have uh, a free reign to uh, put anything into our environment that they want. And the pressure is on, as I said, worldwide. So the USA, Europe, and uh, many, many other countries are thinking about changing their laws as well. And we'll hear more from Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, on the program next week. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir, 
We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. Would you like to reduce your risk of dementia? The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. Many Australians, but not enough, are waking up to the latest push for more US bases in Australia for their troops, war machines and soon nuclear submarines. In the Philippines, President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has granted the US access to four sites on top of the five existing locations under the Enhanced Defence Cooperation Agreement in various places of the Philippines, including a province facing the South China Sea. What is not so public is the fact that there is some internal conflict among the Marcos clan about the expansion of US bases. I spoke with human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy and before we talked about these bases, I asked him about the history of those bases in the Philippines. There was an actual sort of treaty called the US Bases Agreement for the Philippines and the United States that was signed, I think, in 1946 or 1950 after World War II to provide the US with the use of the Clark Air Base and the Subic Bay Naval Base. And these were very um, controversial locations in the Philippines because there was a very large number of US military personnel there. There was a big sex industry. There was quite a few abuses, um, including the shooting of civilians who were scavenging and things like that. Which, you know, so there was a long-running sort of store. Um, and then when um, the Marcos dictatorship came along in 1972 and uh, President Nixon endorsed the, the dictatorship, the martial law, you know, the sort of antagonism in Philippine society, including in its upper classes, about the U.S. role uh, was much sharper even. Come 1991, when the uh, basis agreement expired and needed to be renewed, that's a decision of the Philippine Senate. So uh, uh, that's the, the period when I first went to the Philippines uh, for a sort of a political reason. It was an anti-US basis uh, event in January 1989. So there was a build-up of the opposition to the basis happening. And uh, by the time it came to the Senate, although there were some doubts among lots of people, you know, what would the Senate do, it was quite a big majority said no. And also this point of time, the vote in the Senate was like just a few weeks after Mount Pinatubo erupted and uh, threw you know, ash all over both uh, Clark Air Base and 
Subic Bay. And, you know, for, for physical security reasons, you know, they had to be evacuated anyway. But, um, the, uh, the Senate then did this vote and, uh, the US had to accept that they couldn't go back. So there was, you know, the re- removal of nuclear materials from those bases happened in a real hurry. There was a lot of, um, uh, rehabilitation required because of uh, toxics uh, all over the place. Um, but, um, Basically, they were gone. And uh, come 1999, under President Estrada, uh, the U.S. came back and said, we really want to come back into the Philippines, but we don't want exclusively those two bases. We would rather have access to any base that the Philippine military has, as we need it. And uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, there was a different Senate, and uh, I think there was quite a bit of payoff happened. And uh, it was an overwhelming vote to yes, and it was called the Visiting Forces Agreement. So under that agreement, you know, there are lots and lots of US, uh, Filipino military bases in their country, and the U.S. could request access to any of them at any time. So that sort of started slow, but it's it's continued since that time. And you know, so after September 11, 2001, so not long after that, President uh, George Bush declared the Philippines was the second front in the war on terror and there was a significant boosting of US military presence in the country using the Visiting Forces Agreement. So that's the period 1991 to 1999, zero US bases. How were those bases used in the Vietnam War by the US? Oh, major, major, uh, sort of rear bases for the uh, naval and air force attacks on uh, North Vietnam and bombings all over Vietnam, south and north. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not a very long flight. I think it's just maybe one hour <laughs> from Clark Air Base to uh, to Vietnam. And uh, so it was a very, uh, you know, useful base for the United States. And uh, there was a big anti-Vietnam War campaign in, in the Philippines you know, because of that, that role, yeah. And, you know, the same with uh, Subic Bay. It was so so handy, and, of course, they, they really used it a lot. And, you know, also the Australian Navy used to pull into Subic Bay when it was operating off Vietnam as well. Well, now, until this latest announcement, five bases, where are they? can't name all of them, but uh, I do know that the, the one that was... Uh, set for Cagayan uh, province, which is in the north uh, east of Luzon, so a bit more towards Taiwan. Its governor has got some kind of uh, financial arrangements with the Chinese investors of some sort, and he, he's refused to have it, <laughs> have the base. So uh, maybe he's not motivated by Filipino uh, patriotism, but uh, all the same, it's a bit of a problem for them. Um, but one of the bases in Palawan, uh, and if you know the, the geography, Palawan is the most westerly island, uh, so it's uh, significantly in the disputed area of the South China Sea or West Philippine Sea, and um, it's a, generally a pristine, beautiful place. So the idea of it being militarised is is um, a bit, bit of a shock, and and of course it's it's sort of the front line then of the, any clash between U.S. forces based in the Philippines and, and Chinese forces in that uh, South China Sea. And I think the you know the rest of them are in um, the Visayas area, which is also sort of close to the the Western Visayas, close to the 
uh, South China Sea. Was there any indication that they were planning on asking for five more or four more? Not, no, we hadn't heard anything like that. In fact, you know, it's only you know, May, last, June, July last year when the new President Marcos was sworn in and there was a, you know, a bit of speculation about his attitude to China vis-à-vis USA. And uh, so some people was, were saying there wouldn't be any increase in US military presence. But, you know, the Marcoses have a complicated but long-standing connection to US uh, ruling circles. And so, there's, as it turned out, no problem when they asked for their expansion. And you, you just have to see this expansion of the bases. There's not, not much to do with the Philippines' internal politics. Uh, it's to do with U.S. military posture towards China, and especially focused on Taiwan, which is just to the north of the Philippines. Is it true that the Philippines government has no control over what happens on those bases? That's correct, yes. yes. So they have this... Um, Situation which has been there since this visiting forces agreement, um, where you know the, if the U.S. wants a base, they have their base inside the Filipino base. So, say so you come to the gate of the Philippine military base in Zamboanga City, that's in the southern uh, west, southwest of Mindanao, a much troubled area. So, you go through a Filipino checkpoint. You're in the Philippine base, and then you get to a U.S. checkpoint, and then you're only in the U.S. It's U.S. only inside there. So they they have a sort of a layer of protection from Filipino forces, but there's no Filipinos inside that U.S. area. And no one knows what goes on inside the the, the type of weapons they've got. Well, I think uh, in, in general that's correct. No one knows, but of course people people do talk to each other. Um, and so you, occasionally you get some sort of clue. But uh, from what we saw, say, in 2017, there was a terrible uh, bombardment and reduction of Marawi City in, in uh, Mindanao. And um, the, all the hardware that was used was Filipino, um, but the, the U.S. Uh, provided surveillance, uh, intelligence, like how to target, where's the, where's the best targets, and then people on the ground even helping to direct the fire. So um, I think the US doesn't really want to openly engage in any conflict inside the Philippines, but occasionally it happens, it does happen. Um, and they're basically armed with the best you know, uh, equipment US military has, but we're talking about soldiers here with small arms generally. Um, and the, the heavy weapons, um, the naval vessels and uh, aircraft and that are really aimed at China. You have said that there is rumblings in the Marcos clan about what's happening. What are those rumblings? Mm. Yes, this is curious that Aimee Marcos, who's a cabinet men- member and a senator uh, and the elder sister of uh, the president, she's, she's not happy uh, with the... Uh, U.S. getting the five extra bases, uh, and Ferdinand Jr., you know, he's the one doing it. He, he wants it to happen. And, of course, he signed the document, so it is going to happen. So, But you can see that there's some sort of resistance, so it's right inside the family. Maybe that's a bit of an insight into the whole way this presidency is going to work. You know, There were quite early indications that Army Marcos was you know, much more influential in creating the cabinet than than Ferdinand. And then also Ferdinand's wife, who's who comes from a powerful Filipino uh, political family, also 
played a role um, in those decisions too. So, um, yeah, this debate about whether the Philippines would get into a conflict, somehow be dragged into a conflict with China, obviously would be exercising anyone with half a brain in the country. And um looks like I'm in Marcos, maybe with, again with uh, commercial uh, relations with Chinese interests, doesn't want to jeopardise them. That's what I expect is happening. Um, but it's it's in the open, this, this argument. So that's a bit of a problem politically, I think, for um, the Marcos administration that this is happening. And it will be a problem for the United States, I think, in, um, you know, finding the limits of how far they can push the Filipinos in this escalating standoff with uh, China. And, and you have to see it as being at this stage over Taiwan. So are you saying that the grassroots people in the Philippines are aware of what's going on and what these bases mean for them? Yes, yes, yes. That, you know, it was such a big thing for so long after World War II with those two bases that we talked about earlier. Um, and then the return of them, the war on terror, all of that. Uh, yeah, I think uh, most Filipinos are aware of this issue. They're not just uh, closing their minds to it. But, of course, it's very difficult for the ordinary people to do much about it as well, you know. But what about other politicians? What are they saying? I haven't really uh, picked up any further things like this senator or that uh, House leader or so on because, um, you know, the the Congress is is massively for the president and the Senate is hugely for the president. You know, something like 18 out of the 24 senators are with the administration. So... um, it's, it's a, it, there will be some discussion going on there, but I think it's better to look at the uh, bigger grassroots level organisations. So, so the BIAN, which is a long-standing uh, National Democratic Alliance, it was formed in 1985. So it went through the first struggle. In fact, it was the leader of the struggle against the Clark and Subic. They're quite mobilising over this issue and therefore there will be a fair bit of grassroots education and there are you know, rallies and so on happening. And the same with the Gabriella the Women's Alliance, which uh, is even more sharply concerned because of the violence that happens around women uh, near these bases. So, um, yeah, I think that... Uh, we shouldn't underestimate that there will be a hardening in, in the society of the debate over these uh, bases. But for now, um, the, the Congress is, is so solidly with the President that you, know, that you can't see change happening from that point yet. Not yet. I'm not sure whether we covered the ILO high-level tripartite mission last time, but if we didn't, it's now two months since it was over. Yeah. Yeah. Any repercussions, good or bad? Well, I think it's good. Um, and, the, you know, the, the findings were really positive in that there was no dispute from the Philippine government side or the employer side that this uh, repression of the trade union sector was wrong and, and had been happening and it's wrong. And, that be, and they agreed that the counterinsurgency policy had to be changed to delete or any any suggestion that trade unionism itself is a threat to national security. But on the other hand, the repression has continued. So even while, I didn't know this at the time, Jan, but at, during the three or four days that the mission was in the Philippines, there was uh, an abduction of two trade union organisers in uh, Cebu. 
and it was captured, you know, it was in broad daylight, it was captured on video, everyone could see that there were police doing it, um, and so the, these two cases were also included then in the findings of the mission, and there was a, you know, really sharp call from the ILO side for um, those people to be released, but they haven't. Yeah, so the feeling among the union people is that it was a success you know, as far as it's gone so far. But the, uh, there needs to be some sort of much more concerted uh, correction and, and it's, a, it's a fight because the Philippine National Police does not really want to concede this uh, space of uh, counterinsurgency being applied to trade unionism itself. And another dimension of it is that it, it has become stronger, I think, even since January, that the uh, unions are working together the best ever. That is, really, since since the 1980s, there's been there's never been this level of unity um, among these different federations that normally squabble um, and have sharp differences. They're quite united and really supporting each other on this issue. I think because they can all see that they're all in danger um, of arbitrary, uh, you know, abduction, killing, severe harassment, and so on, um, at the hands of the government. So that's a good side uh, as well. It's that's apparent. Are they the grievances they took to this mission? Uh, yes, yes. There was a, a joint union presentation by all of the affiliates of the International Trade Union Confederation. There's four of them. There are other unions in the Philippines and they also all supported what was put forward. So it is it is good in that regard. Yeah. So I myself looking at the region, say comparing the Philippines to ASEAN, there's nine other countries in ASEAN and they're all a bit notorious, you know, for repression. But on the trade union dimension, the Philippines is very, very extreme. You know, it's, um, as I said, there were 56 cases of unionists being killed let alone all the other cases of uh, repression in the years of Duterte. And in the next nearest country you get to is, is Cambodia, where three three were killed in this sort of period. You can see that the, the, the really big difference. So I, I think uh, it's, it's really right for everyone to realise that, you know, the Philippines is, is in the top ten of worst countries in the world for workers' rights. And, you know, the efforts being made uh, through the ILO are therefore are very important in establishing these facts in the international community and drawing global attention to the uh, need for change. And, of course, here in Australia, we really also need to up our efforts to correct, help correct this problem. And uh, we're certainly trying to, from our end in the Philippines-Australia Union Link, get the new uh, Labor government to play a stronger role through its embassy uh, in, the, in the Philippines and in other ways to try to reduce this intensity of repression on the workers. So what does this mission do with its findings? Where does it go from there? In June every year there's this international labour conference in Geneva. So that's the assembly of the ILO and uh, there will be a report back from the uh, mission formally to that, and the Philippines government will be required to respond, and any extra problems that have emerged you know, from January to June will be put to, definitely be put to the Philippine government representatives there. So, uh, you know, looking at what 
what they've done in the uh, United Nations Human Rights uh, Council. You know, you could expect them to be incredibly brazen and just uh, say it's not happening and pretend it's not uh, been going on. But I, I think that's really non-viable. It's less less possible for them to get away with anything like that at the ILO, given what this mission did, than it is in Geneva with the uh, UN side of things. So, um, yes, yeah, so I, I just know, knowing the situation. It's going to be a grinding sort of effort, but right now, politically, I think in, in the international community, the, the trade union movement in the Philippines has got the upper hand and should be able to push forward for some change. I don't know how incremental or how big it could be, but something should give, I think, um, by June uh, in uh, the ILO conference. Talk about the jeepney strike and what happened, and for people who don't know what a jeepney is. Uh, under Duterte, there was a, a program called the Jeepney Modernisation Program. The jeepney is a um, fairly uh, characteristic uh, feature in Filipino life. It's the sort of main form of public transport. And jeepneys were, the word even comes from uh, post-World War II situation. So uh, there in 1945-46, the country was devastated. There was very little things working, and ordinary people acquired uh, second-hand jeeps from, or abandoned jeeps from the U.S. military and uh, modified them, put a bigger tray and some benches in the back, and they became the the minibuses or uh, extra big taxis or whatever you want to say for moving people around. So it's really a historically speaking a, a grassroots response to a transport crisis, and. Um, you know, even up till today, the jeepney is the sort of mainstay, even in Manila, of uh, the way most people get around. And um, they're a bit bigger now than they were at the, in 1940s. They nearly all are made from uh, recycled or second-hand uh, diesel engines coming from Japan or some some other country like that. Maybe there's some Chinese now, but I think mainly Japan. And um, they um, apply a... a clear route, there's a clear uh, fare that people pay and um, you know everyone helps each other with on the jeepney, you know, getting on, getting off, passing the fare down to the driver and the overall thing for the drivers, it's a, it's a hard job because the traffic in, in uh, the, any city in the Philippines is tough and, and it's very, you know, the air is very polluted and um, in that sense it's unhealthy really. So jeepney drivers don't really earn a lot and um, they're sort of part of the struggling general level of the population in economic terms, and so they're they're well regarded. And um, the modernisation program then was, oh, you look, the jeepneys are belching uh, smoke from their diesel engines. We have to get rid of all of that and clean up the place, and we'll have them all air-conditioned and so on. So, you know, instead of a a second-hand engine mounted in a chassis which is um, developed from bits and pieces in the Philippines itself. They were saying, let's import uh, air-conditioned sort of minibuses from uh, Toyota and uh, put them on all these routes. And, of course, the difference in price, you know, was like tens of thousands of dollars. So virtually all the jeepney drivers could not convert, in fact. And um, they would all be out without a job. And, of course, the fares would go up as well. So the 
travelling public were also very anxious about what would be the impact on them. So there's been in these, it's been going as a debate for about five years. There's been a couple of big strikes of jeepney drivers protesting about this uh, program. And uh, in the end, um, you know, I know some union organisers of the jeepney drivers who have been in jail now for years, three years since the last strike and leaders were arrested, but in the end got off the charges sometimes. So, it, you know, the program, maybe also because of COVID, was not able to be really dri- driven through by Duterte. So it's still there under Marcos. And uh, this uh, strike happened just two weeks ago. It was uh, called for by uh, Jeepney Drivers Associations in Manila. Um, Piston this is uh, the title of one of those um, big networks. <clears throat> and that's close to the, oh, it's a federation of the uh, KMU trade union centre. Uh, but it sort of spread like wildfire. So as soon as other Jeepney Drivers Associations heard about it in nearby urban areas uh, to Manila, it started to be called for there. And the strike happened pretty well all over Luzon and, and I think in uh, Visayas. So the government was taken by surprise. It didn't expect it. And, and it was a hugely popular event. So... Uh, there's a comment coming from the KMU people, you know, that after the ILO mission, they've been requesting a meeting with President Marcos to discuss the findings and what to do about the recommendations, and, and then they haven't got there. Uh, but two days after the jeepney driver's strike, the, the jeepney driver's leaders were invited to the palace to discuss the modernisation program, and, and one of the outcomes of the meeting is that uh, there'll be another sort of committee created to review the program and the jeepney drivers will be on the committee. So that's quite a change and, um, you know, to be welcomed that there would be such an opening. One of the lessons they, they say from that is, well, we we got to realise that if you do manage to organise a successful strike, you will really get access to the power uh, to discuss with them. Uh, if you're just politely sending a letter uh, asking for a meeting, you, you just get ignored. But anyway, uh, it's good. I think uh, the the, the jeepney strike wasn't reported in Australia at all. Um, but it's good for people to know that the uh, those sort of sectors or worker sectors, uh, but especially the jeepney drivers, which are very important in society, are organised and they're capable of uh, you know mounting such an event and really expressing their uh, demands. And um, and they had public support for it. So that's a healthy side, you know, of the much-troubled uh, politics of the Philippines. Well, a, a truism, surely, Peter, that hardly anything gets reported from the Philippines. But one thing that's continued on for years now is the, the red tagging. Yes. Yes, so this is a, a specific, uh, you know, practice, in Australia, you, you might be called names by a politician, but you know we've got at least some legal protection that you know we have defamation laws and there's anti-vilification laws and stuff like that that have some sort of inhibiting uh, uh, power. But basically, you have to really commit a crime and get charged and go to court in Australia over something. Even these terrible anti-protest laws we have in New South Wales, that's the sort of process that happens. But in the Philippines, uh, uh, of course, you've got all of these uh, people who are calling for the end, uh, action against poverty. They want their democratic rights. They don't want the media uh, to shut out their opinions. They're speaking up about 
mining or uh, the Jeepney modernization program or whatever. And uh, instead of um, addressing the problems that people raise, the police, senior politicians, army and military officers, they say, oh, okay, that person leading that uh, farmers association or that trade union, they're a terrorist. They're communist terrorists and uh, people should have nothing to do with them. And they, <laughs> So that's the red tag. And um, once that happens, of course, the person who's named has got no particular comeback. There's no charge. You can't go to court and so on. So they they find themselves on on a uh, the end of uh, text messages coming saying we're gonna you've got to shut up if you don't shut up we'll do something to you. A month later the message will be if you don't shut up we're gonna kill you, and then often people do get killed. So the red tagging is is a very very um, serious form of uh, intimidation and threat of violence and and in the end leads to violence. You can see that it's like a form of fascism, in fact. Uh, so the um, red tagging uh, in this ILO mission, for instance, that was a, quite a feature of their discussion, the complaints and the findings. And that's the thing, you know, the, in the counterinsurgency program should not be saying that any trade unionist is a threat to national security and therefore can be called a communist terrorist or supporter of the communist terrorists or whatever. And, and so... Yeah, you can just imagine the chilling effect it has, Jan. And and those people who continue to try to represent their community uh, needs, while that is happening to them, they're very brave. And they do they do have to take precautions, but many 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 of them don't don't give in. And of course, the risk just continues to mount the longer that goes on. So I, I know quite a few who are in exile now in in Europe because. It got too heavy. You know, the threats were just so fierce, and so they had to get out. Australia sometimes provides um, refugee status to people suffering that, but not much. Whereas in Europe, there's even private sort of foundations which will provide some kind of short-term protection. You know, for a couple of years in Germany or in uh, Netherlands or France, um, but. Um, yeah, that that is actually what's happening. But to reach the high level of a bishop? Sure, no problem. No, they've killed bishops. <laughs> that it does. There's no. There's nobody safe actually from this in the Philippines. We've got a senator in prison now for five years uh, on completely phony charges, simply because she disagreed with uh, Duterte's anti-drug killings. Nobody is safe. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was chucked out by Duterte because she also raised questions about the killings. No one's uh, safe. And this is a system that our governments support? I have this formula, Jan. You know, Australia has a long-standing, deep and complex relationship with the Philippines. Therefore, you know, what they say after that is therefore... Yeah, we will raise our concerns in private. We won't place any sanctions on them. We won't do anything. You know, that is actually the the way Australia, under either conservative, you know, coalition governments or Labor governments, uh, is operating. So we're trying to see what this new Labor government will do. But so far, there is no real change. Thank you for the discussion, Jan. And thank you, Peter Murphy.
Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the third Newport Jazz Festival. 50 bands, multiple venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians, the 21st to the 23rd of April. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Get your tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office, Market Street, Newport or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au. Let's get the party started at the friendliest festival in the West, Newport Jazz Festival, a 3CR supporter. Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. At the weekend, I spoke with anti-war activist Brian Tyrrell at his home in Iowa. Brian, winter's over and lots to do, and foremost for you is a protest about F-35 bombers at Madison, Wisconsin, Tuaxfield. But I want to refer you first to two articles I've found on the internet regarding F-35 bombers. Number one, F-35 jets are coming to Madison. This is April 2020. After years of deliberation and controversy, Madison's Chuak film has been chosen as the new home for a squadron of F-35 fighter jets. Number two, the Wisconsin Air National Guard, 115th Fighter Wing, officially broke ground on the first major F-35 project on the 11th of August 2021 at Truxville. Now March 2023, what's the story now? Madison is going on lots of places. I know um, the last summer I was at the German air base at Buchel, which is being uh, refitted at this moment for uh, the F-35 to arrive there. And uh, I was at, also at the base in Netherlands at Bokel, where the first F-35s have arrived. And at both those places, you know, the plan is for the F-35 is to deliver the nuclear missiles that the United States Air Force has at each of those bases on a so-called nuclear sharing basis. One thing that's happening in, in Madison that's interesting is you know, in the United States, the, the National Guard is supposedly the state militia, and it's not supposed to be under the Pentagon, but it's the state defense, and it has been used traditionally for uh, hurricane relief and forest firefighting and things. Uh, it was never meant to be a foreign force, and uh, you know, I'm 66 years old, and when I was young, the National Guard was the place people went to not go to Vietnam. But beginning with the uh, beginning with the first Gulf War in the United States, the National Guard has ended up being the you know kind of the front line of militarism. You know, the state of Wisconsin does not need F-35s 
to, to defend itself from, uh, say, Minnesota or even, God forbid, an attack from Canada. It's all for all their training and all, the, all their weaponry is all for, all for foreign wars. An interesting thing about this is that the, the only two places in the United States where these F-35s are not going to be on, you know, established Air Force bases, uh, these are National Guard, Air National Guard bases that are in Madison, Wisconsin, and in Burlington, Vermont, that are based on the civilian airport. So these F-35s are not going to be at a military installation far away from in a very rural area, mountainous area maybe, but be uh, pretty much in the middle of cities. And these are these two places where this is happening are two of the most liberal cities in the United States. And so naturally there is uh, protest movements uh, evolving there. What's happening in Madison, which I'm more familiar with, I'm a Wisconsin native, is that the resistance so far and the protest so far has mostly been kind of in the not in my backyard kind of way of saying that we don't the noise this is going to this creates these these F-35 fighter bombings the amount of uh, pollution you know to the local area is fantastic it's not going to be in the Rocky Mountains or in the backwoods of Missouri it's going to be right in the middle of a city. But there are more and more people in, in these places who are seeing globally that this is, you know, the F-35, its impact on the global climate and the global environment and how this new weaponry is increasing, you know, the very, very real threat of nuclear war. Before we go any further, Brian, what actually is an F-35? It's a great big bomber. You know, it has a crew of one, which is a great improvement. It has a nuclear capacity. You know, the amount of, yeah, the, the one number I see is uh, 10 tons of CO2 per flight hour as these planes are flying around. It's one thing the United States did in the Kyoto Protocols years ago is they managed to get uh, any discussion of the military taken out of any of the discussion about carbon emissions, they've got a freebie. And that has to be a great concern because this is, you know, building new and actually less efficient jet fighters uh, that that really have no purpose other than killing people and, you know, ratcheting up the, the tension in the world at a time when we ought to be thinking about easing the nuclear threat and the, the, you know, the very uh, real and imminent, obvious destruction to the climate that militarism is showing. So it's a matter of the, the United States and countries around the world, including uh, including Australia, spending billions of dollars on these. This is a big sales. You know, the United States is selling this all over the world. The, the F-35 is killing people in Gaza even right now, I think. Everybody in the world, every country in the world has better things to do than to with their money than to give it to uh, Lockheed Martin to, you know, bring these monstrous machines into their countries. There's, there's no place where that money couldn't be better spent, obviously, on on the environment, food security, on, on health, on education, uh, infrastructure, everything. This is all a part of this money that's 
it's not going down the drain. It's not wasted. It's going into the hands of certain people, into the pockets of uh, an increasingly small and increasingly wealthy cadre of people are making a huge profit off of this, and everybody, the rest of the planet, is suffering for it. Can you expand a little on why the military choose to house these in the middle of a city? Especially because of these two cities, uh, Burlington and, and Madison. You know, I half wonder if it's kind of a punishment because Burlington is a city that, that where uh, Bernie Sanders got his start as the mayor of that city. He's the, the senator from the state of Vermont. I, and I think um, Madison, too, it's a bastion of liberalism in the United States, such as that is today. But there's an, there's an irony to it is uh, I'm going out there in a couple of weeks for three or four days of protest. It wouldn't be happening if, say, for instance, if they would have put the this uh, bomber would have been put someplace like uh, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas or Tulsa, Oklahoma or someplace like that. Um, there wouldn't be this kind of response. And so in a way, it's fortunate that this or, as I said, most most of these are in bases that are far away from any major population center. So it's horrible this is happening. And I feel for the people of Madison, including some of my family. But when these F-35s are coming within, you know, probably within the next months, it's going to be in broad daylight. People of large numbers of American citizens are going to be inconvenienced at least by the noise, if not horrified. Uh, they, the, the kind of noise levels that they're predicting have shown um, really devastating effects on children. And you know, it's, it's spewing all kinds of poisons, not to mention the carbon emissions, the, the, you know, the, the PFAPs, the forever chemicals, are, you know, the horrible chemicals are being spewed out and not over mountains and forests, but over over human habitations. And that's terrible, but, but on the, I hate to say a positive side of it, as if there could be, but hopefully this will have the advantage of arousing people's consciences and, and um, they'll be more informed. I think we can, uh, people can tolerate all kinds of terrible things happening far away and to, and uh, in other places and to people who are, have a different skin color <laughs> than theirs. But when, when it's happening around them, you know, I'm really hoping and trying to work and organize around that this is going to wake people up and not just to protest something that's happening to them in their locality, but to give them a, a hard dose of what, of, of what the uh, military-industrial complex is doing to our planet. Are you aware if, if people have already been forced out of their homes or are planning to leave? I've heard about that. I'm sorry I don't have the, you know, I need to, I'll learn more in Madison, but I do know that, that, they, that, that it's parts of the, the city, uh, you know, people are saying are going to uh, really be uninhabitable from, you know, just the, 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 the noise pollution. You know, these, these fighter planes are of a whole different, entire aviation industry is, needs to be revamped, uh, our whole way of living and the way we travel and the way that we live. But these planes in, in Europe, seeing the, the Tornado, which is a small thing compared to this, the, 
Tornado fighter jets that they've been mm-hmm. using in Germany until just now with the transition to the F-35. And yeah, just the, the amount of the smoke that you can see and, and smell and the, you know, the ground shakes and the, and, and the noise is just, just horrendous. And, and these jets, it isn't a matter, you know, thinking in just very human terms is, you know, the F-35 has just one person in the cockpit and is using up more fuel than a commercial airliner. It might be bringing hundreds of people, some of them to good things. The F-35 is not going to be used to uh, have children meet their grandparents. It's not going to be used either. The F-35 will be useless in terms of rescue and bringing supplies. Uh, the F-35 won't help anybody who's in an earthquake or a hurricane. <laughs> you know, like some other planes will. It's uh, absolutely just 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 uh, an instrument of death. You know that has serves no good human purpose. And so the the, the waste of you know the, the destruction to the planet that this does has got is there's there's no positive side to it. I did read that there's a possible lawsuit to prevent it. Have you heard that? Yes, yes, and that's that's good. I've I've heard about that. I'll learn more about that. Uh, in a couple of weeks in, in, in Madison. And there has to be lots of ways going about that. Our joining Catholic workers who are going to be doing a, a nonviolent direct action at Truax Field where the, these, these are coming in. And that's an important part of it. One thing that's been frustrating for our friends in Wisconsin is that, uh, you know, of course, the representation in Congress for Madison is very, very liberal, but they're not speaking out about this. Tammy Baldwin is the, the senator from one of the senators from Wisconsin, one of the most liberal people in in the U.S. Senate, who is a supporter of the F-35. So there really has to be. I think uh, politicians are not generally courageous people. Even the best of them don't make stands that are going to that, that will risk them their positions. And their feeling is part that if they uh, don't get reelected, they can't do the good things they want to do, so they need to say the things and do the things to get to get elected. And in the in the reality of the United States today, with all the money that the the new the, the, the military industry puts into the campaigns of the candidates for the various offices, you know the the, the politicians don't feel like they're able, even if they, it would be their inclination to to speak out or or to, to vote against these things, to agitate against them. So there really needs to be, you know, from all all circles, you know, people who have elected offices and the people who elect them have their responsibility. And uh, uh, these lawsuits, and I think there are several, are are really great. The courts have their responsibility. and uh, But for all of that, individual people, to use the word citizens, because I think human beings are more than citizens, we are that, but we are much, much more. We have our responsibility to inform ourselves and to act as well. The military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower talked about back in 1960 before he left the presidency has taken a hold of democracy in this country and I think other places too. It, you know, is a monster that needs, needs to be defeated and it's not going to be voted out. Eisenhower first wanted to call it, but his advisors changed his mind. The 
military-industrial-congressional complex because the members of Congress are as tied up into it as as the tycoons who run the uh, arms manufacturers. Is it also the case, Brian, that there's certain people in the local economy who are making money out of this? Yes, there are. There's there's tremendous. Well, when you when when you have an economy where the only thing that's really being supported totally is the military, a situation like the United States today and many other places where the infrastructure is being allowed to to decay and rot, where schools, the quality of schools is declining, where the quality of health care is, is declining, you know, our food quality, the, you know, the, the potholes in the roads, everything is getting worse. <laughs> but the money is there for the, for the military. You know, that's where the money is. The, Congress has just passed, I don't know how many billions, close to, close to $900 billion, uh, military expenditures for the coming year. $200 billion more than what, what President Biden asked for, headed toward a trillion dollars. That's where the money is. And so, um, you know, that's where at present where, you know, that gives people jobs and people with those jobs will vote for the politicians that are going to keep them in in, you know, in in their jobs and keep the paychecks coming. But every study shows that, that uh, a dollar spent on anything else in the military is actually more conducive to, to the health of the general economy. So, yeah, so, so there are lots of people whose money, whose livelihoods depend on this. Uh, first of all, the politicians, unfortunately, but, you know, many other people so it's a hard thing to fight but it's it's our existence as uh, on this planet demands that we do have these planes already been sent to germany no no they should be arriving sometime soon i said it was just a few months ago just i think in june that the first four arrived in the netherlands and i think there's like 35 coming to germany but the first ones haven't come. You know, the first F-35s used in combat were just a few years ago in uh, in Israel, used in Gaza. So, yeah, and I, I believe that there some have arrived in Australia already, and you might know more about it than I do, but this is, yeah, uh, there's several countries. Most of the, I think all the NATO countries are going to get them. There is Saudi Arabia, of all places, they don't have a deal yet, but they are pushing for um, for getting the F-35. So it's, it's you know, a frightening ex- escalation. When you talk about the crumbling cities in the United States and money not going to social places where it should be, it's a mirror here. We might be a bit behind you, but we can see it all happening here in Australia. seems to be a, a, across the board. It, and it's, uh, you know, seeing some countries like the, you know, the talk of uh, Sweden joining NATO is doesn't bode well for the for the people of Sweden. It's and a terrible thing about this is that it doesn't having a world empire and having a mighty army. It doesn't necessarily translate into things being good for the average person in the imperial city. I, I think one of the things I think about is. 
when I was a kid, I read everything I could by Charles Dickens and horrible squalor Dickens described in the urban areas and you know the villages and the farms, the poverty and hopelessness you know, and great expectations and Little Dorrit and all these books. He was writing at the time that the British Empire was at its height, <laughs> when it was the, the, the mightiest military in the world, and and the life of the people in England was as you know as squalid as as, as those in in the colonies. It was it was horrible for everyone. The, the, the you know the hope, you know the, the you know the hope for anything. Um, any kind of life worth worth living in my country and yours is to divest of all this militarism. You know, we have better things to do than to build all these weapons and better ways to use these resources. I, I think about with the F-35 too, what's happening around the world now with, with, with everybody, the United States in the lead, looking to more and more weapons to solve our problems as though that has ever, ever worked, is the amount of energy being being put into making these things and testing them and all the steel and all the technology, the wasted technology and development and production. I don't think, as Noam Chomsky said, we don't have any problems on this planet anymore that we can't solve. We're not trying to. The, the industry and the, and the brains, the, the research going on in our universities is all toward making more weapons. We're not working on if all that was being put toward uh, renewable energy solutions, uh, put toward uh, restorative agriculture, put toward curing diseases, put toward um, you know building transportation infrastructure that would be uh, that would be efficient. But we're not. We're not doing it. We're choosing not to spend money on our schools. We're choosing not to give people health care. We're choosing to ignore the uh, climate change. The, the war with Ukraine has been a windfall for the, uh, the fossil fuel industry. You know, the idea of the United States producing Abrams tanks to send to Ukraine. These are tons and tons of steel. The energy going into making an Abrams tank, and when it's done, it's you got to get it there, you know, by air. Tremendously wasteful to, to move an Abrams tank to Europe. Then when it gets there, if it's the the mileage, it's it's not uh, miles per gallon; it's gallons per mile. It's more than three gallons of gasoline to move one of these tanks one mile, and we're making more and more of these. And that's only one system, just like the, the F-35 is, is, is one system. Cannot be considered without seeing it in terms of its uh, possibility. Uh, I believe all the ones that Germany is getting and all the ones Netherlands has are going to be used for the sole purpose of training and preparing to deliver the B-61 nuclear bomb. Uh, which it's fitted for, and the B-61 is being replaced maybe even this summer uh, again by the B-6112, which is touted as being uh, more flexible and easier to deploy. It's like this new generation of nuclear weapons that our generals tout as being now it's possible to win a nuclear war you know, with these weapons. And, of course, that goes against every the entire scientific 
consensus is that even a small nuclear war would lead to uh, a nuclear winter that would that would be um, you know an extinction event should that happen. But all the safeguards, even the, the even the fear that that nobody wins a nuclear war, which we always heard until just a few years ago, that that's not being said anymore in the highest highest levels. You know, no, this is a time to to act. I, it's hard to talk about hope, but I think hope comes from action. It doesn't. You can't wait around to get some hope so you can act. I think we need to, you know, the the you know the planet and uh, some people say God, history, all is demanding of us now is to do whatever we can to to oppose these weapon systems. The F thirty five, one of the biggest of them right now. Well, you'll be in Madison in a couple of weeks' time. Does that mean that you will then go on to Nevada? Yes, I'm going to go straight from Madison to Nevada and take part in um, uh, what the the Nevada Desert Experience has been doing for 40 years during Holy Week, the the week before Easter, uh, walking from the city of Las Vegas to the nuclear test site, which is about 60 miles and along the way is Creech Air Force Base, which is the headquarters for the U.S. drone program. End of the uh, walk is what they now call the National Nuclear Security Site, which is operated by the U.S. Department of Energy, which, as I alluded to before, that the U.S. Department of Energy, one might think that they are um, might be looking for energy solutions at a time like this, for energy efficiency, but actually the biggest part of their budget is nuclear weapons. And this is the place that in 1953, I believe, was seized by force from the Western Shoshone people and has had more nuclear explosions on this bit of land than, than anywhere else in the world. And as I know it is in Australia, the, the um, indigenous people suffer the most from the uh, uh, the first victims of our nuclear weapons programs. So one interesting thing that's going on is for many, many years, thousands of people were arrested for protesting at the nuclear test site. Back in the 80s, there were just so many people, they clogged the system and they simply stopped processing people. So you get arrested there and they give you a uh, ticket and let you go. And they tell you, they'll inform you of the court date but for 30-some years, nobody ever got one. Well, they started recently prosecuting some of them. So on uh, our walk-ins on Good Friday, the 7th of April, and on the 10th, on the next Monday, I'm going to be in court with one other person charged with trespassing. We're working on our defense. I don't usually spend so much time on addressing the courts, but I think this is very, very important because we're accused of trespassing on this land by simply walking over a white line on the painted on the road. But we went with the um, leadership of the Washington Shoshone National Council, and, and we each had uh, permits issued by the council allowing non-Shoshone citizens to be on their land. It's a very, it's uh, an interesting case because it's like, how can you say if the U.S. Department of Energy is, occupies that land because it violently seized it from the legal owners? 
they're really, you know, not even squatters there. They don't have permission from the land's owners. The, the, the U.S. government never paid for that land, never pursued eminent domain to take it from the Western Shoshone. They, they, they just simply took it. And we have permission to be there. They don't. And also, there's been a lot in the media in Nevada recently because a part of the test site, the part of the land taken from the Western Shoshone is is Yucca Mountain. And several presidential cycles ago, they, the U.S. government was going to um, start building a repository, the idea that this place would be the final repository for all the nuclear waste from reactors in the United States, finally admitting the Department of Energy, finally admitting that there isn't a solution, that there's no place to put this, really. So they're going to put it in this mountain where it's going to be hot for for many, many thousands of years, and it's a very volatile area. It's not stable seismically. It's close to the water table. Uh, It's just far away from most white people. (laughs) And it's been off and on and off and on, and currently they're looking at it being on again. But I think it was back in December, the state of Nevada was in negotiations with the federal government about on all of this and, and several court cases going on and the and the Department of Energy brought a shipment of very high level radioactive waste from the Savannah reactors on the Atlantic Ocean way on the East Coast, brought it by truck across the United States without informing any of the local authorities, any of these places, and they secretly brought it into into the test site while telling the federal government did this, telling the state authorities that they, that they would not do it until there was some kind of re- resolution of these court cases. So everybody's upset in, in Nevada, the Republicans, the Democrats. Part of it is, I, I, unfortunately, the, the, the race issue is there, too, because Las Vegas is getting bigger and bigger, and there's more and more uh, real estate, even as Lake Mead, the only water source for Las Vegas, is in great question. There's this tremendous uh, housing development going on, and there's more and more white folks who are living closer to Yucca Mountain. But in any case, it's very, very, very unpopular. So this court case will be interesting, especially if we can get some publicity around it. You know, it's much bigger than whether, you know, two older white men get charged, go to jail for trespassing. You know, what does it mean to trespass at a place where, on stolen land, and what does the trespass when, when the uh, occupant of that land is committing crimes, both against uh, Nevada law, against the United States law, against the international law, the, the, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty? So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. It'll be an, an interesting time. We've got now about 30 people from all over the United States uh, planning on walking with us, and I'm sure there's going to be quite a bit more. Yeah, it's walking through some beautiful land and spending some time and, you know, being with the, hearing the stories of the land and the people who live there. I'm looking forward to it very much. Finally, Brian, how much land did the Western Shohone people lose? I don't have the number on the top of my head. It's, it's a fantastic amount. It's a fantastic amount. And it's land that was very sacred to them, a place where they came 
Native people came from other places for prayer and for medicine. Much of it, unfortunately, is poisoned, you know, for all practical purposes for human beings, you know, poisoned forever. You know, it's a part of a much greater uh, web of, of crime and theft. Okay, well, I'll just say good luck with it all and try and stay out of trouble, but if you can't, so be it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't expect to stay out of trouble, but but I, I think trouble in the world the way it is, it's better to be in trouble than be at, at peace with the status quo. So I'm I I don't mind. Okay, thank you, Jan. And ever active Brian Terrell from Iowa in the United States. You've been listening to a three CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station three CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.